0: Hello and welcome to Everyday Sublime. I'm very glad you're here. My name is Josh Summers and I'm your host in the podcast that it tries to explore a full spectrum spirituality. That is, it will include shadow elements of being, the light, and hopefully their harmonized unity. In this uh, episode, I release uh, a Dharma talk that I give as part of the weekly Sangha events um, that Terry and I host online. These talks are given on Monday night, and this particular talk looks at the first of the five difficult energies, or the first of the five difficult obstacles that often come up in meditation, namely the energy and mind state of desire. And this is one I'll probably reflect on even next week, as this is a, a theme that I think can benefit from a few passes. But the, the central points of this talk, if I were to summarize it, are that one, um, as we open to the totality of our experience in, in the spiritual path, I think it's really important to both wake up to and open to our, the, the, the reality of how the energy of desire plays out in our lives but then also to gain a sort of discernment and refinement around um, the, the particular manifestation of that desire. So there, as I try to point out in the talk, there's, are, there are simple desires, like basic wants. I would like a cup of coffee, for example. And then there are there's a, the, the more extreme form of the energy, which becomes a kind of a compulsive addiction, that I will only be happy, I will only feel restful, I will only come to resolution if I get the object of my desire. And as I try to point out in the talk, I think it's really the latter, the, the compulsive, addictive energy in the mind, um, seeking endlessly seeking satisfaction and fulfillment in the acquisition or the, the avoidance of certain things, uh, that that's, that's the, 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 the dynamic that, that the part of the spiritual path is really uh, geared to explore and release oneself from. So that's part of what I get into. And the other half, um, and I I was a little bit rushed in the talk because I started to run out of time, so I apologize if the transition isn't so smooth in today's talk. But the the latter half of the talk is where I try to encourage a a redirection of the energy of desire to actually uh, align with and lead one into exploring their deepest desires in life or your your deepest desires so the deepest desires of your heart and this isn't referring to the desires of like what would you want if you could have anything in the world if you could have any object any car any house any person whatever it is i'm not talking about those kinds of desires i'm talking about sort of the intangible qualities of being that our hearts crave the most whether it's safety love ease contentment peace I, I encourage people, um, particularly after this talk in the meditation, I encourage everybody to spend some time in the meditation to really explore and listen into what your heart's desires are, um, are, are, are pulling you to. What do you, what do you align around the most? And my, my suggestion is that when, we, when we're able to connect with our own unique uh, aspirational energy and practice, that that particular form and manifestation of desire can be incredibly helpful in terms of uh, fueling a a, a real, sincere, alive engagement with the the terrain of what goes on in our practice. And without that energy, practice can be rather dull and kind of routinized in a way. So those two things I think are really important, to, to clarify the difference between simple desires and then compulsive cravings, and then Uh, particularly when we work in our practice, to really touch into the deeper aspects of our own heart's desire and and letting that, in a way, lead the way forward in how we engage with things coming up in our experience in our life, both in the formal practice and off the cushion. So I hope today's talk is of value, um, and if you get any benefit from it, please consider sharing the podcast with a friend, either through email or social media. And if you have the means or interest, um, there are courses that we offer at our site on yin yoga, Chinese medicine, meditation, yang yoga, um, as well as um, opportunity to work with us in more of an ongoing way through the sangha. There's information in the show notes both for sangha membership and um, how to find uh, access to those online courses that we have. So any of those might be ways that you could consider helping out with uh, supporting the podcast and our work here. But by um, all means, I hope you enjoy today's talk, and I look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks for listening today. I'm continuing on with a series of reflections around a, a, a group of contemplations that appear very clearly in Buddhist, early Buddhist practice, um, but they show up in in various other forms of contemplative uh, spirituality, whether it's in in the uh, the Christian language or the yoga language or the Jewish language. There's often a list of difficulties and difficult mind states in particular that make um, our experience of the sacred, our experience of the divine, our experience of ourselves challenging, fraught and difficult. So in, in, in covering uh, these, these difficult energies, I'm hoping that we can all develop skillful ways of contemplating them and ultimately skillful ways of relating to them so that um, they don't uh, feel like they are derailing or, or obstructing our path, but they're actually being integrated and in some ways generating the, the deepening of the path in our own practice and life. And um as to kick off uh tonight's talk, which is going to focus on the, the theme of desire, um and, and sort of so I think some of the, the theoretical complications or issues that, that emerge when we start trying to look at our experience of desire in our heart and mind. Um as a way of, of introducing this, I wanted to just share the the the, the language that is is a, found within the, the what is attributed to be the Buddha's own reflections on this, on this theme. Um, so there's a very well-known sutta, and sutta just means a, a discourse or a thread of teaching. Um, and there's a well-known sutta where the Buddha gives four broad domains of experience he's saying to be aware of, to be mindful of, um, in order to develop an insight into what generates um, the unnecessary torment, if you will. Um, And that Sutta is called the Satipatthana Sutta, the Sutta on the the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And this list of difficult energies that I'm going to be referring to, known as the hindrances, this list comes into the fourth category, the fourth domain of of objects that the Buddha is saying to be aware of. And um, if you're newer to meditation, uh, the word object comes up a lot. It's kind of a specific term within Buddhist or and, and meditative practice that refers to any experience that you can be aware of. So, you know, your breath is often de- de- described as the primary object of attention. That's the thing that you bring your attention to in some systems. But sensations elsewhere in your body, sounds in your environment are objects of awareness, just as thoughts and emotions and feelings can also be objects of awareness. So that term objects, mental object comes up a lot. And um, in the sutta, the Buddha gives a, sort of a, an overview of how to uh, train oneself to be aware of these difficulties. And um, he re- he's referring to monks or bhikkhus. Bhikkhus is, is an old term that really refers to anyone that's trying to apply these teachings. So, in a certain sense, we're all bhikkhus um, or unordained bhikkhus uh, trying to apply uh, these reflections to our own practice in life. But this is, this, these are the words that the Buddha gives for working with sense desire. And just as you listen to it, I want you to sort of get a feel for the language, but also get a feel for what it, what, it, what kind of feeling it stirs up in you in terms of what, what would you need to do to accomplish what the Buddha is getting at here. So he says this. He says, monks or bhikkhus, this is how you train yourself to be aware of mental objects particularly how to be aware of the five difficulties of the five hindrances. says, here in bhikkhus, when sense desire is present, a bhikkhu simply knows there is sense desire in me. That's the easy one. When it's present, the only instruction is just to recognize that it's there. This is sense desire. This is wanting something. Then he continues, he says, when sense desire is not present, a bhikkhu knows there is no sense desire in me. And that one, that one's interesting. Just to, 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 if you think about it, when when we have troubles in our meditation, it's usually we're very aware of when they're when they're happening in real time. But when when the mind moves on from, say, that particular trouble A, and moves into the next patch of difficulty, whether it's restlessness or agitation or boredom, you move into trouble B. You kind of forget that trouble A was ever part of your experience. So, so there's, there's a lack of appreciating when it's absent, um, but this is what he's, he's he's encouraging. He's encouraging a kind of, um, I think, a broad, comprehensive awareness of when something's there and when it's not there. And then he goes a bit further. He says a, a, a bhikkhu also knows how the arising, how the how the arising or the appearance of non-arisen sense desire comes to be. We start to appreciate how desire arises prior to its appearance. Like, what gives, in other words, what gives it fuel? What fuels it? What gives, what conditions support the emergence of desire in our mind stream or something? And then he continues, the Buddha says, a bhikkhu also knows how the abandoning of arisen sense desire comes to be. How is it abandoned? Finally, he knows how the non arising in the future of the abandoned sense desire comes to be. <laughs> Just, I always have to marvel at how kind of uh, clunky the, the sentence structures are uh, here, but I'll read that again. Bhikkhu knows how the non arising, the non arisen sense desire in the future the abandoned sense desire comes to be in other words, how do you, what, what supports, what, what, what conditions allow this sense desire to not arise again in the future. So you get to know what fuels it to come to be. Now you get to know what, uh, allows it to be abandoned now when it's arisen. And you also get to know what kind of conditions support it, not arising ever again. <clears throat> now that's, the the literal words in the in this particular sutta. And um, I want to share I wanted to share that with you for a couple of reasons. One, um, you might get, get a sense of why I don't quote directly from early Buddha suttas that much, <laughs> because the language is a little bit dense and and archaic. Um, but one thing here is that the, 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 the in in analyzing the experience of desire, it's clear that to do what the Buddha is actually encouraging, you can't hold yourself only to kind of a laser-like focus on present moment events as they unfold in real time. If you only train yourself to be very, very focused on what's happening right now and right now and right now and right now and right now, and right now you'll never be able to undertake this kind of comprehensive reflective analysis about what supports something coming to be, what what continues to allow something to be, what allows something to be abandoned, what prevents something that's been abandoned from arising again in the future. That requires a broader, um, more comprehensive familiarity with the energy. And, And I would argue a kind of contemplative reflection to really get to know these energies over time. So those are two, two reasons why I, w- I wanted to share the, that passage with you. But I also just sort of want to rhetorically ask, when you hear that, um, when you hear that kind of a reflection, what does it instill in you in terms of a sense of the job at, at, at hand? What are you meant to do in your practice? And if you're like me, when I heard this passage, I just assumed that that, these hindrances are things to be abandoned. That word comes up a lot that we're trying to abandon them and, and get past having desires. As I tried to say, maybe a week or two back, I often felt found that in my practice, whenever I would have a desire, whether it was uh, material or interpersonal or professional or whatever it was, I always felt guilty. I felt like the desire itself was a, was a, was, 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 was evidence that there was much more work to be done. That my mind stream was still getting polluted with these these persnickety desires, and that that I was um, rather a an unaccomplished, an unevolved meditator, in a way. Um, but as I as I shared, actually, we, this is sort of a sort of a, a theme that I'm looping back to from last fall when I was looking at some of the reflections on the four noble truths. But. Um, if we and and this is the problem with interpreting suttas in general, if you take one thing out of context, it can it can be can be interpreted in a way that may not be so helpful. So if we take that particular passage and that particular reflection and and remember that what the Buddha is really speaking to is about uh, the kind of desire that that turns or pivots into craving. Because in the Four Noble Truths, it's the the root of our suffering isn't desire itself. It's the clinging, the grasping, the attachment to a particular desire being fulfilled for our sense of happiness. And the way I tried to speak to that in the past was that essentially the mind um, hatches a strategy that is conditional. The mind hatches a, a conditional strategy for peace or happiness that says, I will be happy if X occurs, or I will be happy if X doesn't occur. I will be happy if I get rid of X. I'll be happy if I become something else other than what this thing is now. And those are the, the various manifestations of that kind of clinging. So this is a really important point, point. I, I want to kind of um, review it a little bit now and then, and then talk about what it might look like in our, in our practice. But um there's a an author, he's a he's a psychiatrist and a meditation teacher named Roger Walsh, who in his in his wonderful book called Essential Spirituality really puts it quite clearly and succinctly. He says, attachment or craving and its full-blown cousin, addiction, are very are very, very different from simple desire. So there, there's a, there's a discernment here between the attachment and the clinging that I think the Buddha is really speaking to and just the basic experience of basic, of simple desires. He says, attachment is a compulsion that screams, I must have what I desire if I am to be happy. Desire is simply wanting. Attachment, a compulsive necessity. So desire is a simple wanting. Attachment, a compulsive necessity. Unfulfilled desires produce little impact. Unfulfilled desires produce little impact or harm. But unfulfilled attachments, unfulfilled attachments will yield frustration and pain. He continues somewhere else. He says, the amount of suffering in our lives. And this is the key point. I think the amount of suffering in our lives reflects the gap between what we crave and what we have the gap between what we crave and what we have. And I like that, that reflection of the gap. It, it, and it reminded me of a metaphor that uh, my, my very first Dharma teacher, Rodney Smith, uh, would often use. He said, Dharma 101 is this, the 101 of the teaching is this, that we all stand in life on a diving board. We're standing. Imagine you standing at the edge of a pool on a diving board. And he said that to the degree that we rearrange the events of reality or or impose and lay upon the events of reality with, with with strong grasping and expectation and attachment is like a strong jump off the diving board and jumping way up into the air. So the degree that we have a strong desire fueled by attachment and clinging and and wanting, it's like we jump, we spring off the diving board. Only to land not in a water uh, water pool, but into an empty pool of concrete. <laughs> and it, you know, that was, I didn't see that metaphor where it was going at first. But when he got there, it was like the, the pain of landing like head first or feet first into a cement pool without any buffer or padding or water to break the, the fall is quite painful. But the the point uh, got driven home that to the degree that we are demanding reality conform to our expectations and our craving or our clinging that is the 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 dynamic the energetic dynamic that sets up the distress and i um after hearing that that metaphor that on that talk I, i remember walking in kind of a chastened way where i was moving extremely slowly now just because i wanted to keep my experience of reality on the concrete of reality, the suchness, that I did not want to jump into my own mental uh, desires and, and, and uh, clinging for, for some other thing to be going on. And, and I found that I, in doing that, by just staying with what was happening, there was a way my mind um, became much more peaceful. But it also reminds me of this, um, this famous Nasruddin story. And uh, this is Nasruddin was uh, a great teacher in the Sufi tradition. Um, But he was a bit of a rascal and a a trick player. Um, But one day, Nasruddin was walking down the road, and he saw a man who looked quite poor, but he saw a poor man sitting by the side of the road with a a stick and a little bit of a bag hanging off the stick. And and the, the, the man was wailing and crying. And Nasruddin approached this guy, and he said, Sir, my friend, what's the matter with you? What's the problem? And the man said... I'm so poor I have, all I have in this world is in my little bag and I, I just they have no prospects and no future my life is just a waste and terrible it's a terrible situation and I have nothing to look forward to and I only have the things in this little bag did I say that and as Rudin looked at him and said I'm so sorry and upon that he just grabbed the guy's bag and ran off down the road. And as soon as the guy realized he'd been stolen, like he'd been robbed, he started wailing and beating his chest even more. The like, guy had nothing. And now I have even less. My bag is gone with my bag and everything in it. So the guy is bes- the, 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 the the man on the side of the road is beside himself. But eventually, he, as the story goes, he gets up and starts walking down the road. And a mile or so down, he suddenly sees his bags just sitting there in the middle of the road. So he rushes up to it. Picks it up, sees everything that was in the bag before is still in the bag, and he starts to, to, to scream, thank God, thank God, I'm so grateful that my bag, I in my bag again. And then as soon as he's exclaiming his 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 his, his, his um, thanks to God, Nazruddin appears behind a tree or a bush and says, isn't it interesting that the same bag co- caused you to wail and moan, and now you're pra- you're thanking God that you have it back again? So, you know, this can be overinterpreted or simplified in some ways, but the basic idea is that, you know, a, a peace, a peace of mind, a rugged, durable peace is not about so much getting what we want, fulfilling desires. It's about being deeply content and at peace with what we have. Now, as I say something like that, this is, I always have to say, this is sort of, this is a teaching for when we're above a certain level of poverty, and I mean that, like if you if you're in a situation where you know you don't have enough adequate food, you don't have enough economic resources or or work or whatever it is to maintain your basic um, needs for existence, we obviously you know we need to get get those in place in order to be stable and and and, and to and to be healthy, but. The research bears this out, like once people get a, get a, above a certain economic level, increased amounts of money, increased amounts of affluence, increased amounts of of, spirit, of uh, material uh, objects do not in any way improve sort of the quality or the satisfaction or meaning in someone's life. So I'm, when we look at a teaching like this about working with craving and clinging, we need to bear that in mind, that we're, we're speaking about... Um, kind of the the way our minds psychologically spin and proliferate into a kind of obsessive compulsive around compulsion around something that we we don't really need for our essential existence <clears throat> i mentioned last time a um a singer a uh, sort of a a, a buddhist mystical rocks folk singer named Stuart Davis, who I i haven't listened to him in a long time, but it was in my early Dharma days of going on retreat, I would I would kind of like he was my like my my Christian rock and roll evangelist for my 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 dip into Buddhism. Um and there was a, a lyric in one of his songs called Savoring Samsara. So samsara if you're not familiar with that term samsara is the opposite of nirvana. Samsara refers to cyclical existence where we're behaving in kind of a repetitive robotic way, just chasing pleasures. One way of defining samsara, just blindly chasing pleasures. Um, And in the song he says, there's a million ways of licking honey off of razors. (laughs) A million ways of licking honey off of razors. And then he says, but some sugar hides its price, and every lick is another life. Which sort of gets the idea that, it you know, I'm not talking about like literal rebirth, but when we hook ourselves to a desire, you know, we get born into that craving. Our sense of self gets born into that craving, and we feel like we will never be complete or we'll never be um, satisfied until we achieve that. And of course, once we achieve it, then we're just hankering for another thing. That's sort of the ongoing wheel of samsara, always seeking for the next hit, the next pleasure, the next thing that's going to temporarily appease the sense of incompletion, inadequacy, or unfulfillment that kind of propels it all forward. So in working with these difficult energies, The the, the one thing I I really want to kind of uh, impart here is that desires themselves are not, in my view, the problem at all. And and I don't uh, I don't personally aspire to becoming a desireless being. Um, I think uh, there's many biological reasons for desire. And um, there's a lot of just, for lack of a better term, zest in life that comes through the enjoyment of pleasure. I, I don't think we need to we need to jettison or cut that out. But what I think practice can provide us, and this is what I, when I speak of meditation now, when we meditate and we come to a, a, a sort of a, a voluntary dynamic of simplicity. You can describe meditation or think of meditation like that, that we just sit down for our 25, 30 minutes or more, and we commit to a period of voluntary simplicity. We're not moving around, we're trying to stay relatively still, and we're just intending to look at both our experience, whatever occurs, and how we relate to what's going on. And the reason why I think the practice is so transformative when someone we, we commits to it over a long period of time is that in that uh, period of voluntary simplicity, What starts to become conscious or what starts to bubble up into one's conscious awareness are the unconscious patterns or the unconscious habits of clinging. You start to see it. We start to see how our mind doesn't feel very comfortable just being because it's uh, uh, sort of onboarded or been programmed through a variety of different uh, conditions, but it's been programmed in a way to, to not see resolution now, to not experience stillness and peace and simplicity now. It's been programmed for a whole variety of different ways to feel inadequate with that simplicity and to always project a future thing or another thing that is necessary to happen in order to feel resolved. Now as the meditation reveals these unconscious impulses, unconscious compuls like uh, patterns and, and forms of clinging, initially that's not going to feel very comfortable at all. it's not it's not comfortable to sit with that stuff and that's what many of you were, were sharing the last few weeks is that' just we start to uncover as Laurie, as Lauri said last week that the layers of no, the layers of resistance, to this simplicity, but and, and this is a hard thing to appreciate. But the, the better you get at starting, starting to recognize and open to and be honest about seeing that energy, that com- that compulsive. I wish this would happen. I wish that would go away. I wish I'm, I wish for something different. Or why this, the instructions aren't clear enough? Why doesn't he give better instructions? <laughs> Whatever it is. You can see this all—all all that bubble up in your mind. It's in letting these unconscious things become conscious that we can now start to transform how we, we we hold or relate to them, and we can start to see that we can be with a strong energy of desire and let it do its thing, and just let it be part of our experience, just like a sensation in our in our belly or a sensation in our head or a sensation of sound in the environment. We can just let it be and not have it. Uh, Blindly push us around um, and, and and demand that it, it, we we behave in accordance with its advertisement. Um, so I, I'm going to mention a little bit more about something I've been noticing in my own practice, and just to use this as an example, um, and then see if in the course of your practice tonight there's similar things or dynamics that you notice that that bear some semblance to this or resemb- resemblance to it, I should say. Um, so I think some of you will be able to relate to this. Um, but, uh, when you're, when you're part of your job and livelihood is to talk about meditation, you start to feel like, okay, this is meditating is not just a, 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 a thing that you do for yourself as a, as kind of a, a self-care practice. It's, it's, it's like professional legitimacy practice. If you don't do it, you're not a legitimate teacher or a facilitator or anything like that so there's a there's often you know a, a sense uh lurking somewhere in the back of my practice like a habit of ego might call it an ego habit like oh, i have to do it if i'm not a good med- if i'm not meditating regularly then then i you know I, I don't deserve to be teaching i'm a fraud and you know I, and I, sh- I shouldn't even be like talking about this stuff at all so there's that kind of energy that can come up in in, in practice for me sometimes but often um because it has, and I'm just sort of naming the the, uh, the un, un, I don't know if it's unflattering side of a daily practice. But just naming that, that I feel like, OK, this is a task that a legitimate meditation teacher needs to do on a regular basis, on a daily basis. I have to sit. So I get used to like, OK, I'll sit for 30 minutes, and I'll do 30 minutes a yin. And that's the bare minimum for a self-respecting teacher to, of a practice, for a self-respecting teacher to have, 30 minutes of meditation, 30 minutes of yin. I can call myself a decent practitioner if I'm doing that. Ideally, I try to do more, but at the bare minimum, there's like a there's an hour long practice there. But what happens is when you start practicing like that, there's another activity just to check off, and you may not have that feeling as a teach if you're not a teacher, but you may have that that kind of burden of of of, of a sense that um, if I'm going to be a decent meditator, I have to make sure I'm doing it every day, and if I don't, I'm, I'm somehow coming up short. But with that, what can happen is you can start to get very habituated to the time within which you practice, um, either the same time of day or the particular uh, window of time. And so something I noticed for a while is that in sitting for 30 minutes, I could be more or less clear and confident within a 10-second range of when the bell was going to go off. And I don't say that as a, as a as a powerful Uh, Skill of psychic um, power or anything. I just said it's just a it's it's the speaks to the level of habituation that starts to happen, and you know just get you get comfortable. I know many of you have have reported something similar. So I started to notice that okay, I I I I sit down and and it becomes this habituated thing, and I kind of go through the motions with it, and and I feel like it's not really being encountered in a fresh way. So I started wondering what to do about this. And I remembered um, reading the, the Zen teacher, Charlotte Joko Beck, saying, you know, every now and then you should double your practice time. Just challenge yourself by doubling it. Really it will shake up your whole experience of time. You may think about time differently in your practice, et cetera. And I thought about that. I thought, "Okay, if I double my half hour, you don't need to be advanced mathematicians. You know, OK, I'll be sitting for an hour. Now, that suddenly sounds like a long time and i remember i did one retreat for a while in myanmar where that was the amount of time every meditation was every 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 other hour there'd be an hour of sitting and i have i had two months of memory around the challenge of an hour-long sitting and how grueling it was and particularly the last 15 minutes felt like it would take a lifetime to get through like time would just slow down so much. And it just was incredibly excruciating. So I was really thinking like, okay, if I do an hour, is this just, you know, is this really a form of kindness? Is this, um, this going to be a good thing? Is this going to be another thing that my ego gets all wrapped up in? And what I found was, in, in, in engaging with this for a little while now, is that it's incredibly freeing to do it something like that because what happens is i know i know that if my mind goes down the rabbit hole of starting to try to figure out how much time is left to be so that i'll sit for the full time to be a good meditator if i go down that rabbit hole of trying to gauge and anticipate and approximate and sort of feel through like, okay, this feels like maybe there was a half hour. So maybe a half hour, maybe it's only 20. Okay. It's only, I go down that rabbit hole. Like There's so much agitation and discomfort that comes into my being from entertaining that line of thinking. It brought me to the point that I realized that it's better to just let it all go. Let the time go step out of time. And I realize that if I that's much easier to do. I can I can be present to this. It's just this. It's still just this. But as soon as I start thinking, well uh, you know your hip sensation it's starting there's a little numbness creeping in it might travel down your leg your whole foot might go to sleep you don't know it could happen should you move now i don't know getting into any of that starts to just i can just feel it churn the pot of agitation so i have found it um really helpful in my own practice to to kind of work this way like what like instead of getting into the, the mindset of desiring or craving for when the practice is going to end, which is a very common one, to just r- try to catch it quickly and and actually open to what is around it or what's beyond it, which is what is this independent of any worry about time? And so to tie it back into the idea of desire – When something comes up—a desire for the retreat, for the for the meditation to end, or a desire for your body to move—to pin it, to flip it around, and ask to ask yourself a question: What would? And I, I know we used this before last fall, but what would this be like if there was no clinging involved? What would this desire be like purely as an energetic cloud or energetic weather pattern, without? The underlying compulsion that it must be fulfilled in order for me to be happy. I don't know if this will land for you, but um, <laughs> it was a the American monk Sinestro Biko, and I was on a retreat with him many years ago. He started the talk. He said, "I'm going to ask you a question. Are mountains heavy?" We're all like, uh, yeah, (laughs) I don't know. I couldn't say how many, how many tons of uh, a mountain would weigh, but any mountain that's designated as mountain is probably going to weigh a lot. And his point, his, his, his quick answer was mountains are only heavy if you try to pick them up. And the basic argument is like, don't pick, don't pick those mountains up. So it's the same with, 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 with clinging. You know, the desire is, is, the experience of desire is fine. It's, it's, it's part of who, who we are. We're going to have desires for all sorts of things. What the practice is asking us to do, though, is to pay attention closely, to feel whether or not, and this is something we have to evaluate and reflect on in our experience, to reflect on whether or not there is a, a sort of the, the conditional, if only, energy attached to it. Like I'll I'll feel happy in this meditation if I get calm, if this sensation goes away, if I stop getting so sleepy, if my thoughts stop, or whatever it is. And what this what this contemplative path really tries to um, encourage people to test is whether that's that's true. And the, and the basic, basic um, conclusion that those of who have walked the path far enough will all, will all state is that there is a bliss. There really is a blissful quality of being that does not come about from fulfilling desires. It comes from being free of the compulsion to fulfill them. And... That's what we're on. That's what we're up with. So I'm always trying to keep the talks within a roughly a thirty minute range, and I'm nearing the end of my time frame. So let me just maybe end with this passage. Um, this is also from Roger Walsh, the man I quoted earlier. Um, sometimes when we when we think about letting go of our attachment or letting go of our clinging it can feel like it's going to be a um, kind of a, a sterile flat bland existence and and, and i, I want to kind of um, offer a, a counter argument or counter thought to that beginning with what he has to say what roger walsh has to say he says the relinquishment of attachments, and the maturing of motives that accompany spiritual growth are not a sacrifice. That's the main point. The relinquishment of attachments are not a sacrifice. Rather, they reflect a simple outgrowing of less mature and less satisfying pleasures. Just as the desires of childhood, such as wanting dolls or toys naturally fall away as we begin to enjoy adult pleasures, so too do ordinary adult desires, such as those for fame and recognition or money and wealth, these grow and pale, these sorry, these grow pale and less interesting as we taste the delights of more mature motives. And this was articulated very beautifully a few hundred years back by Rumi. Little by little wean yourself. This is the gist of what I have to say. From an embryo whose nourishment comes in blood, move to an infant drinking milk, to a child on solid food, to a searcher after wisdom, to a hunter of invisible game. Okay, I hope you enjoyed those reflections. I hope they support your practice going forward. And uh, as I said to the group in the live session, just after this talk, when we had a meditation together, in the meditation, I really encourage people to um, spend some time reflecting back, um, almost in reverse order from the Rumi poem that I read from, but go back through your life, uh, through the, the early years from zero to 10, And go into your teen years, then go into your 20s, and then I brought people into the now. Um, But in each decade, I was sort of encouraging people to reflect on how the energy of desire manifested at that particular time. So what kinds of things were you preoccupied with those? And just to get a kind of an appreciation of the arc of your life, and, 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 and within that to appreciate the arc of the evolution of how you're being desired peace well-being happiness fulfillment etc and then from sort of taking stock of all of that through the life i encourage people to really sit and ask oneself and sit deeply into the question what do you most want out of your practice what do you most want out of your life what quality of being or qualities of being do you value the most and how can you use your time in practice as a way to realign and awaken the, 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 the fervor in a way, awaken, awaken the zeal of your heart to infuse your practice with that energy? And that's, as I as I said to the group, that's sort of something that I, I think what is a is a is a work in progress. It's not like you'll do this exercise once and then be one and done. It's more you open that inquiry up and then revisit it and allow it to be developed and refined over time. But it's it's really key, I think, to to tap into that energy. And the more that I've been tapping into my own self, I, I've noticed good things are uh, transforming in my own practice. So, uh, I hope you enjoy that uh, that exercise, um, and I look forward to seeing you in the next talk. Um, and I will be releasing an, an interview or two soon. I got them queued up. I'm just sort of getting ready, and still sort of kicking off the um, the dust from the move and settling in and, and getting this year up and running. But things are starting to move in place, and I'll be back with interviews and other... Kinds of reflections soon. So enjoy your practice this week. I look forward to seeing you in the next episode, and until then, be well and take care.